who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested, and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android, or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I'll use my background in journalism to dive into topics that matter to women today, from divorce to call-out culture to masculinity to girls' confidence. Season two of Thread the Needle finds the meeting place between feminist ideals and the realities of women's lives. Listen to Thread the Needle wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we evaluate the world through our own personal feminist perspective. Evaluate the world? What what is the line? I like that you're mixing it up. You know what? We've been doing this for almost four years. I feel like it's time. I feel like it's time for that. Oh, God. You when know, when we it was, evaluate When the it world. was coming out, I was like, this feels wrong, but... You said it full of confidence. Like, there was no hesitation whatsoever. I, I know, but you. you know, the problem is, ever but, since we've started recording in person again, every single time feels wrong to me. Like, every time I do it, I'm yeah. like, what am I supposed to say? Like, literally well, we legit every time. didn't do it for, like, over a year. I know. Yeah, So, like, even, even right now, I'm like... I don't know. And apparently I, I look like I'm going to laugh every time we say it. It's just like, we're a mess. We're just a mess over here. You listen. <laughs> listen. It is we, what it is. I, honey, we really just need to make a shirt that just says, listen on listen, it. Period. Period. Okay. And then, uh, end quote, Keegan. I just, I can't. My brain is listen. really functioning at like half capacity. You know, whenever you feel like you're split off into too many directions, yes. you can only give each thing like so much brain power. Totally. And that's totally where I feel like I'm at. Like I'm like legit, I'm gonna have to quit my job soon. Like I'm like, I cannot like I cannot keep up with quit your job. With everything else that I'm trying to do. And every time I try to be like, okay well, I can cut back somewhere else. Like I can find a project to cut back on. I'm like, but I don't actually want to cut back on any of the projects I'm working on. The only thing I want to cut back on is Is working my job. You know what I mean? So I'm like, man, what a, what a conundrum. What a concept, you know? know? (laughs) You should get a part-time job somewhere. Ah, yeah. I don't know, man. I'm stupid and decided to move in, decided to blow a large portion of my savings on, on your wedding, wedding <laughs> move into an expensive apartment. Oh, stupid, stupid, stupid. Okay. Trying to live a good life. Stupid. I know. God, being comfortable. Dumb. 
How dumb. <laughs> yeah, seems really over overrated, but I'd really like to see what that's like. <laughs> it's the thing is, yeah, it's like it sucks either way. I like know. it sucks either way. It's like you okay, have to keep your money. Yeah, cuz once yeah. you're committed to something, like yeah, you you have a lease or, uh, on an apartment. It's not like you can just like walk away from it. But on the plus side, are we in a closet? No. no. Okay? So like pros and cons. Honestly, yeah, we're in an entire <laughs> room right now. It feels pretty good. Yeah. So we didn't have to like die of the heat over the summer. It was amazing. Yeah. We each have our own microphone right now. Like, look, sometimes sacrifices must be made. (sighs) But sometimes what that means is you don't know what you're going to get at the top of this episode. You don't know. Although I love that. So usually (laughs) listeners, we record the mini first and then we record the full. But I did not send myself my mini notes. So we're going to record the full first. And now we are rambling at the top of an episode like we usually would for a mini episode. But we're doing it for a full length episode. Peek behind the curtain, everybody. It's explore. It's explore the world. I just I it just came to me like it took that long. How many minutes? Three minutes in. Great. Cool. Wonderful. Anyway, listen, Oh, honey, maybe we should like type it out and like tack it to a little like sound cushies, you know, like keep it on a sticky note. Cue card. Read Um, it. (laughs) Well, along those lines, we had already, you know, told you all that we wanted to give you a feminist favorite of some sort once a month. Right. And because this week, this week has been unusually busy for me, like every single day after work, I have something this week, which, which is, is not so overwhelming. Yeah, it's not typically how it goes. Like usually I'll have like a day or two where I can just kind of like veg out after work, take totally. my time making dinner or whatever. But it hasn't been like that this week. So when we were trying to figure out what to do this week, I was like, can we please just do a feminist favorite? And you know, I'm literally always down, always down. Yeah. I mean, and not to say that these episodes are no work because they are. Yeah. Like, you know, we do have to do our It does depend on, on the person and stuff yeah. too, but there is something, uh, it, it's more focused. When we do a broad topic, there's a lot more research to be done because we want to make sure we're touching all the bases on some certain yeah. topic when it's a person and it's the story of their life. It's usually going to be the same ish. No mm-hmm. matter where you go, you're just going to get maybe some more information from certain places. It's right. just not as intense as when we are looking into. Right. And I feel like know, we others. are more because of the nature of our school system, like our public education system. Like we're far more conditioned for this kind of work. Well, like we used to always call this the book report episode. Yeah, because it what really it feels does like. feel like a book report. Yeah. It's like you're going to read several different sources. You're going to take the information in, keep those resources and then kind of like write the story Share it with it's, the class. Yeah. Yeah. OK. So with that said, uh, we are doing just a straight up feminist fave this week. Yep. And I decided to do someone um, who I think was, well, as you'll hear, she was incredibly prominent throughout many decades. But in the 90s, she definitely had a resurgence in popularity that remained throughout the end of her life. So I was very cognizant of her growing up. And uh, that is Maya Angelou. Ooh, how have we never... I don't know. I think it's because she's one of those ones that is very like prominent yeah that it's easy to it's it's a lot to take on I think it's almost kind of overwhelming to take on well she did so much this is one of those people who uh when you're doing the prep for it or when you hear her story I was legit legitimately talking to Anthony about this like she makes you feel like you are 
completely unaccomplished because it's like how is one person able to do all of this in yeah. like our, our one time on earth? Like I'm already in my early thirties and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm so far behind schedule because like Maya Angelou was able to cram in like so much stuff. I think, you know, like I feel like that's the theme of how we think of most of the people that we discuss when we talk about feminist faves. But then I also think like if I were to write the story of your life, I think that it would be filled with a lot more than you think it would. Like maybe like you're not, publishing these amazing things or like doing these amazing things like I think reading the story of your life would be just as fascinating as reading anyone well, else's well thank you so much that's well, such a I nice mean, thing I mean I love say. you and I think you're fascinating oh, so thanks wow wow I feel so good about myself right now <laughs> don't blush so hard Keegan <laughs> Okay, so let's jump in. Um, Maya Angelou was born Marguerite Annie Johnson in mm. St. Louis, Missouri on April 4th, 1928 in Aries. I just love throwing that we in We always got to add it. Well, fuck, now I got to figure out what my woman is. <laughs> uh, her father was a doorman and a Navy dietitian, and her mother was a nurse and a car dealer. Ooh. It was her older brother, Bailey Jr., who gave her the nickname Maya because he used to call her Maya's sister. And I don't know if that's like a little kid thing where it's like my sister. That's like what I was going to say. Sister. That's exactly what it sounds like. It's like a little brother that can't pr- quite pronounce his sister's name. Yeah, which is so cute. Or like maybe like my younger sister. Yeah. Like maybe it's like an abbreviation for that. Oh, but I love very that. cute. Uh, her parents' marriage was a profoundly unhappy one. Mm. She would later go on to say that it was calamitous. Ooh, uh, great word. She is, I mean, that, well, that's kind of... she's a fucking writer. She's like, a poet. And like, I watched um, a video of her with someone else that they made after her passing where they went back to kind of like her hometown. And yeah. just the way this woman speaks, just the way that she talks, like I'm talking to you, is so poetic like she yeah. just that's her language i also fucking love the word calamity yes, calamitous me too. is just great calamitous uh so the marriage ended when she was three years old and her brother was four at the time when her father sent them alone by train to stamps arkansas to live with his mother annie henderson a three-year-old and a four-year-old just put him on a train oh my gosh it's like Bye-bye. so this would be like the early 30s at this point yeah yeah so i mean i feel like maybe in that time it was something that was like seen as more normal but i'm picturing a three and a four-year-old in my head just a little briefcase little my- suitcase, you know <laughs> not even a, not even luggage it's a briefcase yeah, a briefcase <laughs> Well, it was the 30s, so they're like in little suits and ties. And yeah. No, honey, you don't get luggage for your long trip to Arkansas. We're going to give you a briefca- briefcase with some paperwork. That'll do. <laughs> Off you go. Make you look professional. Uh, but, you know, yeah, I mean, whenever I was a kid in the 90s, I definitely flew alone as a child. I knew people that did. I never did. Yeah, I, too scared. I, I did. Like as a, a pretty small child, not three or four, but probably yes. like seven or eight. But... I feel like at that time, there were a lot of things in place. Like, I think, I feel like they assigned me a You like, would typically have a person that, like, checks on you. And then also pre-9-11, if you were, like, 
seven or eight, yeah, your, your mom, mom could walk you all the way to the gate. Exactly. Hand you off to said flight attendant and you would go on. But like a train station, a three and four year old. And then also just being like, you're going to hang out in this train car for however long. However where was she from hours, again? You're going from St. Louis to Arkansas. And oh my gosh. Granted, Missouri and Arkansas There's gonna be stops. are not super far away. But yeah, like you can't like predict. Far what, enough. Or what's going to happen to these kids. Like they could have straight gotten kidnapped. You know what I for mean? For real. And or like, wandered off the train or I don't fucking know. Navigating a train station now is not fun. No. Like, so I, to me, Maybe that was just Maybe there were less trains back then. It's yeah. like, you get on this train, it's going to drop you off where you need to be. Or he's a horrible father, which both well, could be true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so those stamps, Arkansas, was deeply segregated. She would later say that there were two stamps, a black one and a white one. And her grandmother owned a general store. And because of this, she was one of the few who prospered financially during the Great Depression mm. and throughout World War II. So, Fun fact, my family owned a grocery store in St. Paul during that time as well. Nice. How were, how'd they fare? Was it kind did, of like okay? I think that it was called like Haggerty's Store or whatever. And it was actually across from the place that I got a few of my first tattoos. Yeah, I, I feel like if you owned a... Um, like a store that sold goods. Granted, a lot of people didn't have a lot of money, but people are always going to need to buy things. always going to be in need for right? food and things like yeah, that. So yeah, I've never really asked enough. Like it's my dad's side of the family mm-hmm. that I barely know anything about. So I just know they had a grocery store and it was during that time. Kind of made me think of that. Yeah. So um, I don't know a lot about her early childhood in stamps. I'm sure that there's information on this. Uh, she wrote a lot of autobiographies. Right. So I'm sure that she has written about that time. I wasn't able to find a lot of sources readily available about those years uh, in her early childhood, but it's probably good. It seemed like it was pretty uneventful and stable those good. those years. So, of course, it was a shock when four years later, without warning and out of the blue, her father showed up and took her and her brother, now seven Mm. and eight, back to their mother in St. Louis. Oh, God. So this is the worst part. And I remembered hearing about this, I think, on the Oprah Winfrey show when I was a kid, like in the 90s. Um, While living with her mother, Mm -hmm. she began to be sexually assaulted by her mother's boyfriend, who eventually, trigger warning, uh, went on to rape Maya at the age of eight years old. Oh, So she told her brother, and then her brother, trying to protect her, told the rest of their family. And the boyfriend, who was a man named Freeman, was arrested and found guilty, but was jailed for one day. No! He was jailed for one day and released. Oh my God, no, that sounds like the most terrifying thing ever because he's been tried and convicted. He's going to be fucking pissed. Right. Like, I would not feel safe. Well... Four days later, after his release, Freeman was murdered. Oh, thank God. And I mean, no one should ever be murdered, but oh my God, like I cannot imagine being a child and knowing that the person who has hurt me so much is just allowed to walk free after a day. Well, I mean, it was still incredibly traumatizing for her because it's widely believed, and I think she believes as well, although, you know, they were never tried or convicted or arrested or anything. Um, But it's widely believed that it was her uncles who killed him because of what he did to Maya and the fact that he wasn't um, punished really. 
Ooh. for that. So okay, but I just want to get something straight really quick. Yeah. I don't want this to go on for too long. But so it was her father that picked her up from Arkansas right. and brought her back to and and Louis. left her at her mother's house and left her at her. Okay, so it wasn't like he was picking her up to be with him because that no. kind of threw me that it was like it's weird. I and I don't know why. And she says that. He showed up suddenly and just yeah. brought her back. I don't and then know. What about the was the brother then living with the mother then too? Yes. Okay. So they so stay together throughout this. Yeah. Yeah. Because she was able to tell him and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. Okay. Yeah. So understandably, she was traumatized by this event, and so she refused to speak for almost five years. She just stopped talking. That's the thing that I remember learning yeah. about Maya Angelou when mm-hmm. I was little was that she was this brilliant poet. But she wouldn't speak at some point in her life. Yeah, she was mute, essentially, for five years. Um, and she says that this is because, quote, I thought my voice killed him. I killed that man because I told mm. his name. And then I thought I would never speak again because my voice would kill anyone. Oh, my God. Isn't that so sad? I am just picturing an eight-year-old child who just feels the weight of the world on their shoulders and yeah. responsible and yeah. survivor's guilt. And oh God, I guess just there's so much. It's trauma on top of trauma. I'm hugging know? baby Maya right now. Yeah, yeah. According to biographers who worked closely with Maya, it was during this period that she not only developed her love of literature, but she became extremely observant of mm-hmm. everything around her and developed a remarkable memory um, that would stick with her for the rest of her life. So even when she got old, yeah. she had this like incredible recall. Like she yeah. was able to remember just basically everything. And it, you know, she says that it was a side effect of not speaking. Like she just became like hyper aware of everything else. And I feel that way about quiet people in general. Yeah. Like I feel like they, I am so not a quiet person, so I can't relate, but I feel like the quieter you are, the more aware you are of your surroundings. You're, well, you're listening, reading people, you're listening, yeah. you're seeing, you're remembering, you're like feeling everything where I feel like I can become so like, like I'm like yeah. up in the sky most of the time where like, you know, Max is much more quiet and will like really sit and like feel things and see things. And I'm like, I am so not well, like and you're, that. You're listening to listen and not to respond. Yeah. You know, because you're not going to respond. What's that like? <laughs> no idea. <laughs> Clearly. Um, but also, you know, she had to develop this kind of like deep inner world. This was a time before we all had like TVs and we all had the internet at our fingertips and right. things like that. Uh, and it's not like she was going off and having long conversations with anyone. So she became very, very interested in building her vocabulary. And, right. Her communication you know, was like through books. Right, right. And when I say building her vocabulary, obviously, I don't mean to speak, but like just the the absorption of literature constantly. Right. You know. So after um, the murder of Freeman, Maya and her brother were sent back to their grandmother who put the children in school. While there, she indicated to a teacher, Bertha Flowers, that she had a love of reading, especially poetry, and she credits this teacher with helping her find her voice and to speak again. So this teacher challenged her by saying, quote, you do not love poetry, not until you speak it. So she was just encouraging her to like, if you love this thing, like you have to say it aloud, basically. I love teachers. Yeah. So much. Do we not all have like that one, maybe two teachers that you look back on from when you were really little and you're just like, God, that was a great person. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Rosenthal. Like she. Mrs. Quast. 
she I did not like reading until third grade. Like I didn't like it. It made me feel anxious because, you know, I'm one of those people who if I'm not immediately good at something, Same. I want to drop it. Yeah. And so reading aloud, which is what you had to do, stand up and like read. You read this yeah. paragraph and the next person has to read the next paragraph. And if I, I wasn't good at it early on in my life. Right. And so I didn't want to do it. And it was that teacher who really like encouraged me to enjoy reading. And then yeah. I loved it and was just like totally like obsessed with reading yeah my second and fifth grade teachers were just like chef's kiss third and fifth for me yeah oh weird I always liked my even grades so much better (laughs) um so she introduced Maya to literary like classic literary authors like Charles Dickens and William Shakespeare as well as black artists thinkers and writers so she did go out of her way to say like look Yes, like these are considered the classics, right? You have to introduce you to the classics. Right. But that is such a, um, a lot of what we deem to be classic art and classic literature is through the lens of like a, a, a colonist Western European lens, yeah. right? Um, and so she went out of her way to also say like, there are lots of very smart black people, people who look wow. like you, right? Yeah. When she was 14, she moved back in with her mother, who at this time had relocated to Oakland, California. Okay. At the age of 16, she became the first black woman streetcar conductor in San Francisco at 15. I mean, yeah, at 16. Girl. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Maya loved her job. Her mother even referred to it as her dream job. <laughs> she, she was like, I love how professional they look in their uniforms. Like, I just think it's a cool job. Like at 16. And she was the first Honestly, woman. when you're 16, I feel like that's a very like, it's a job with like responsibility. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and later on in 2014, she would go on to receive a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Conference of Minority Transportation Officials. Oh, my God. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That is so beautiful. That's poetic. Yeah, it's very cool. Uh, despite this, b- despite having her dream job, life in Oakland was rough. Yeah. And um, three weeks after completing high school at the age of 17, she gave birth to her son. Oh, my gosh. Now, it appears as though this part of Maya's life has been substantially whitewashed uh, throughout the years. Okay. The, the time right after high school. Even Wikipedia has a six-year gap in her history here. Oh. Uh, and I think it's because Maya was working as a sex worker during this time. Okay. And, you know, she was doing so to support herself and her son. She had a... A kid right. weeks after graduating high school. Right. Yeah, you're in a desperate situation. Yeah, she was a teenager. Yeah. And like life was hard. Uh, and she herself makes no effort to mask this part of her life. Like yeah. she, in fact, like wrote a lot about it in a book called Gather Together in My Name. She talks a lot about it, but a lot of articles that you'll read will not mention this at all. Yeah, I bet it's like she isn't afraid of that being part of her legacy, but biographers want to paint her in a certain way, maybe to make her more like digestible to people. Right. Like they just, they can't like, and this is, it's so stupid and shitty, but like they can't, comprehend of someone like having done all of the things that she did and, and also so smart and so like whatever right. to be able to do something like sex work right is a very narrow-minded way of right. thinking but I think unfortunately is how a lot of people think of it yeah yeah in an interview about the book Gather Together in My Name, she said the following, quote, I wrote about my experiences because I thought too many people tell young folks I never did anything wrong. Who? Moi? Never I. I have no skeletons in my closet. In fact, I have no closet. 
They lie like that. And then young people find themselves in situations and think, damn, I must be a pretty bad guy. My mom or dad never did anything wrong. They can't forgive themselves and go on with their lives. And I think that that is so like, I, I think that's so important. That's so true for like so many kids. Yeah. Because I think parents especially like always want to make sure they're setting the best example, but that doesn't always teach children that it's okay to make certain mistakes. Right. You and know? it's okay to be human and it's okay yeah. to do what you need to do. You know, I'm well, not saying a sex worker is a mistake, but just in general, right. like well, doing something that is seen as like, not socially acceptable, societally acceptable. Like if we don't have our parents or those that we look up to talking about something like that, it is easier to feel shameful about it. Yeah. I mean, and people get into sex work for a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people who actively choose that lifestyle because that's what they want to do. Maya Angelou made it pretty clear that like this was an act of of necessity for yeah. her. It wasn't necessarily like something that she really wanted to be no, doing. No, her dream job but, was to be a conductor. She was not like, right. that wasn't on the top of her list. But when but you she's have, also not um, ashamed of it because she no. had to do it, you know? And, because why, because why would you be ashamed of doing what you have to do for you to survive and for your child to yeah, survive? Exactly. Because the world is not set up for you to succeed if you are not wealthy or have somebody financially backing you up in some way. That's, you have to, find a way to survive right that's I mean, just being smart and she and her son seem to have a, a pretty good relationship right uh and i think that knowing sometimes the things that your parents will do for you like framing it like that like she did what she had to do to take care of you because 100%. she loved you you yep. know what i mean she didn't want this job she didn't want that life but because she cares about her future and her child's future, you do what you have to do. Right. No matter yeah. what. Uh, and during this time, she also worked as a cocktail waitress, a cook, and a club dancer. Oh, my God. Get some sleep. <laughs> yeah. She was busy. And she was a mom, teenage mom. God damn. Uh, in 1951, she met and married Tosh Angelos, a Greek electrician and aspiring, mu- and aspiring musician, despite the disapproval of her mother, who condemned interracial relationships. Mm. She studied modern dance and performed throughout San Francisco before relocating to New York City with her family to study African dance and then returning to San Francisco. Mm. So there's a lot of hopping around here. Yeah. She, she moved a lot. Her marriage ended after three years, but she continued to perform professionally in clubs around San Francisco and sang and danced to Calypso music. It was during her time performing at the nightclub, The Purple Onion, that she decided to change her professional name to Maya Angelou. Um, so her first name, Maya, as I said earlier, is the nickname given to her by her brother. Mm-hmm. And her last name, Angelou, is a modification of her married name, Angelos. Oh. Yeah. So while touring Europe with a production of Porgy and Bess, Maya became proficient at several languages. Like she was like, I made it a point when we went to a new country to try and learn that language. Yeah. And she actually did. She learned uh, a few languages. Well, she's fucking brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Her brain just works in a way that is ins- because she learned to like listen and take everything in. She, yeah. I just feel like she has like a photographic memory in multiple senses. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I feel like I would have been so intimidated if I ever met her. Like, oh my God, I would. She could I read like you like a book. I feel she like. She would make me go mute. Yeah, yeah. She could see right through you, I feel oh, like. Yeah. Oh God. Uh, after relocating to New York in 1959, she decided to embark on a writing career and, join, and joined the Harlem Writers Guild and was published for the first time. 
1960, after meeting Martin Luther King Jr. and hearing him speak, she and novelist John Oliver Killens organized the Cabaret for Freedom to benefit the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and she was named SCLC's Northern Coordinator. And this is just like, she was like, I just want to get, maybe I'll dip my toe into politics. Some people do that. It's like all or nothing. Like they're like, I'm interested in this thing. And they immediately become like the chairman of something, you know, like that's how kind of how she was. So this is when she started to become interested in politics and became active in the anti-apartheid movement. In 1961, she met South African freedom fire Vuzumzi, Vuzumzi, I wrote it phonetically, Make, I think it's Make, and the two began a relationship. She and her son went with him to Cairo, Egypt, where Maya took a job as an associate editor at an English newspaper. So he and Maya broke up the following year and Maya relocated to Ghana, where her son was hoping to attend college. What a life. I know. I mean, and this is kind of the thing. I'm like, oh, I'm scared to quit my job. Like Maya Angelou's just like leaving shit left and right. Yeah, Ghana. she's leaving husbands, jobs, countries. <laughs> right. Fuck she's it. like, I'll find a job when I get there. It'll be fine. Like, <laughs> I'm like, that's the kind of mentality that I need to have. Wow. Right. Um So they went to Ghana because her son wanted to attend college there. But unfortunately, he was seriously injured in a car accident. Oh, no. And while he was recovering, Maya stayed in Africa for the next four years until 1965, uh, becoming an administrator at the University of Ghana. She also continued to write and edit for several newspapers at this time, as well as performing in Ghanaian theater. I love that her son's like, hey, I really want to go to university in Ghana. And she's like, hey, I'm going to become the head of the university for and then you can go to the school. Like, it's like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to technically be there, too. I'm going to go there, too. And she was straight up like, "Okay, like we can leave Egypt and go to Ghana because that's where you want to go to school. I would love to go to Cairo, Egypt. Oh, me too. It's top of my bucket list. That in Greece. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So while in Ghana, she met Malcolm X during his visit in the late 60s. Oh, if I could have a like celebrity dinner with the dead. Oh, my God. I would invite Malcolm X 100%. Malcolm X and Maya Angelou at the same table. Imagine. And Judy Garland. Can you imagine? (laughs) What a dinner. (laughs) Uh, But... You know, again, this is the kind of person she was. She met Mike Malcolm X in Ghana and like was like really kind of on fire about his politics. Right. You know, by all accounts, he was a very kind of like charismatic person. Yeah. Um, and so she returned to the U.S. shortly after meeting him in Ghana to help him build a new civil rights organization called Organization of Afro-American Unity. Mm-hmm. After Malcolm X's assassination, Maya was devastated and relocated yet again with uh, to join her brother in Hawaii, where she resumed her singing career <laughs> before deciding to move to L.A. So she wow. stayed there for like a year and then was like, I'm, I'm out, Maya, go Los Angeles. Well. So she resumed, uh, while in L.A., she resumed her close relationship with James Baldwin. And after witnessing the Watts riots in the summer of 1965, she became even more heavily involved in the civil rights movement and black liberation. We should really talk about the Watts riots sometimes, especially because it happened like next door to us. Yes, yes. Crazy. 
1968, Martin Luther King asked her to organize a march. She agreed, but had to postpone. Unfortunately, she would never uh, get to organize this march as he was assassinated shortly thereafter, Mm. ironically, on her 40th birthday. Oh, no. Yeah. So again, she was devastated. Of course. uh, And she credited James Baldwin with pulling her out of her depression. Like, Mm. what an amazing group of people. Yeah. (laughs) My God. Later that year, despite having almost no experience, she wrote, produced, and narrated Black's Blues Black, which was a 10-part series of documentaries about the connection between blues music and Black African-American heritage. And she did this for National Educational Television, which was a precursor to PBS. Okay. Also in 1968, at a dinner party she attended with Baldwin, she was challenged by Random House editor Robert Loomis to write her first autobiography, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. Oh. And so that was published in 1969, and it brought her international recognition for the first time. Wow. Released in 1972, her George's Georgia, which is something that she wrote, was produced by a Swedish film company and filmed in Sweden, and it was the first produced screenplay by a black woman. She What? Yeah. Yeah. What? Yeah, I know. (laughs) Who knew? (laughs) We're in the 70s, Keegan. I know. Listen, it's sad. That, like, maybe I'm too surprised, but that was like, that was like a moment in my brain. But I mean, I guess it makes sense. I can't really think even now. I feel like it's fairly recent that we're even seeing black women winning these kinds of awards. I know. I just feel like the first. Yeah. It was like, what? Like, um... Nia DaCosta, I think is her name, who directed The New Candyman. She's the first black woman to have a number one, like first black director to have like a number one movie. I guess I just think of um, Hattie McDaniel, but she was an actress. You know, I don't know. I just for me, I'm like, I feel like that should have happened even Mm -hmm. back in that time. I, I, I know that it wasn't a popular thing. It's not like there were so many of them, but I feel like there had to have been one before then. I feel like writing has been very gatekeepy. You yeah. know, oh. like for a long time, like it's a white male thing for sure. Yeah. Brooding yeah. white male thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she also wrote the film soundtrack. <laughs> so she was busy. She wrote the soundtrack and she wrote the screenplay. Over the next 10 years, Maya would not slow down. She worked as a composer for artists like Roberta Flack, composed movie scores, and continued to write anything and everything. Articles, short stories, TV scripts, documentaries, autobiographies, and poetry. She produced plays and spoke as a visiting professor at several colleges and universities. She was nominated for a Tony Award for her role in Look Away and even tried her hand at theater directing. In 1977, she appeared in a supporting role in the miniseries Roots and received more than 30 honorary degrees from all over the world. There she is with Oprah again. (laughs) Yep. Despite not having... Was Oprah in... Yeah. Roots? Yes. I'm I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure that was one of Oprah's like first acting roles. Are you sure you're not thinking of Color Purple? Uh, I might be. But you I'm know look, what? I'm I googling could, Oprah Roots. I could also be wrong. It says memories from the cast of Roots. Oh, okay. It's been a really long time since I've seen Roots, so that's on me. It's been a really long time for me too. That's why I was like, I could very well be wrong. I think I'm right. I'm not, I'm not going to go too deep into No Google. worries. No worries. Okay. <laughs> Despite not having a college degree, 
she accepted the Lifetime Reynolds Professorship of American Studies at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where she was one of a few full-time African-American professors. So she doesn't have a bachelor's degree. That's what I was going to say. It's pretty amazing that she doesn't even have a bachelor's degree and she's working as a like she's professor. She's a professor. Yeah. That's yeah. wild. Because like I have a bachelor's degree and I think I would even, I think I'd need a master's degree to be a professor. I I don't know. I mean, I'm very surprised that that's even that that's allowed. I mean, but I'm I sure like with time or something. Yeah. yeah. Like she had enough like it's kind of like the celebrities that get honorary degrees from certain colleges yeah. because they've done X, Y, Z. Is it Matthew McConaughey teaching something now? I feel like he is. I mean, I feel like he is. I mean, James Franco was teaching acting classes with one of our old acting teachers yeah, for a while. I remember. So. Mm. Um, in 1993, she recited her poem On the Pulse of Morning at the presidential inauguration of Bill Clinton, becoming the first poet to make an inaugural recitation in over 30 years. So the last wow. person was Robert Frost for John F. Kennedy. Whoa. So it was, it's, it'd been a long time. And I feel like this is why children of the 90s remember her so well. Yeah. Because it reignited her fame across the United States. And the recording of her poem even earned her a Grammy Award. So, like, this woman has won everything. She has a Grammy. Um, She's a fucking... Does she have an EGOT? I don't think so, because she doesn't have an Oscar. Oscar. I don't think... Uh, She achieved her goal of directing a feature film in 1996 with Down in the Delta. In 2000, she created a successful collection. (laughs) I added this because I'm like, seriously, what doesn't she do? She created a successful collection of products for Hallmark, including greeting cards... (laughs) <laughs> she, she campaigned for Hillary Clinton in 2008, and it surprised some that she did not throw her support behind Barack Obama. Oh. But she had a relationship with the Clintons. Yeah. Um, Obviously, yeah. Yeah. And when it became clear that Clinton's campaign had ended, she did publicly support Obama at that time. Right. She, you know. She would also complete seven autobiographies in her lifetime and was working on an eighth at the time of her death, which normally you'd be like, that feels like overkill. But with everything that she accomplished, it's a lot of life. It, it, I mean, legit, you could have a chapter on each place you lived. Probably. Yeah. Oh, my know? God. Yeah. Um, by the time Maya was 86, her dancing career had left her in constant pain for 10 years and she was experiencing difficulty breathing. On the morning of May 2nd, 2014, she was found dead by her nurse. Mm. I don't think they disclosed how she died, um, but her son did talk about how she had been pushing past constant pain. Yeah. I think dancing had been really hard on her body and she was having respiratory issues and also some heart problems. Right. So she just wasn't in good health. Yeah. She was just kind of wearing down. Yeah. They chalked it up to old age, I feel like. After her death, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings rose to number one on the Amazon bestseller list. She was laid to rest at the Mount Zion Baptist Church in Winston-Salem. Her memorial featured speeches from her son, Oprah Winfrey, Michelle Obama, and Bill Clinton. Wow. (sighs) Maya Maya Angelou. My goodness. (laughs) Wow. Quite a life. Quite a life. My goodness. Well, thank you for telling her story. Thank you. My name is Jenny Owen-Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one at a time, podcasting about each and every one. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at BufferingCast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
Mine is a bit more forgotten. This is something that I actually saved to my notes like forever ago. And I didn't know who to discuss. So I looked up feminist faves in my notes and I found this person and remembered how excited I was when I first came across her. So today I am going to be talking about Carolyn Kazi. Okay. I'm not sure I know who this is. Okay, so I'm going to give a little like overview before I start her story because I am not going to be using dead names as this is a trans woman. Okay. And she is most known for being outed essentially by journalists in the early 80s after appearing in a James Bond film. Oh. And having life just kind of crumble around her after that. Oh, that's terrible. Right. So that's kind of the gist of what the public knows her as. And this is a little bit more of her story. Okay. Um, it was a little bit difficult for me to piece together really specific like dates and timelines and things like that. Because I think the only way I would be able to like really know her full story is by reading her book. Um, there really isn't a lot on her like Wikipedia page. There's like multiple articles that I kind of had to piece things together. So I did the best I can to get as complete of a story as I possibly could on her. But I definitely think that it's an important one. So Carolyn was born in Brook, Norfolk, a small town in England in 1954. Carolyn was assigned male at birth, but describes feeling feminine from a young age, though she was diagnosed with something called Kleinfelter syndrome, which is essentially where a assigned male at birth has more X chromosomes than a male typically would. So typically a female body has two X chromosomes and they are XX and a male has one X and one Y. So they're XY. But in Kleinfelter syndrome, a boy is born with an extra copy of the X chromosome. And it's actually really quite common and occurs in one to 500 to one in a thousand male births. For most male births that have Kleinfelter syndrome, they identify with being male. They grow up with that. It's it's never really a big issue. But there are many, many males that experience um, having a different gender identity mm-hmm. than what they were assigned at birth. And this is one of those experiences. And on top of all of that, Carolyn was also a very shy child like she really had a hard time like being out there and she also wasn't identifying with the gender that she was supposed to like she had an older brother and a younger sister and she didn't want to play the same games that her older brother did she wanted to play with Pam her younger sister and like play with her mom's clothes and wear jewelry and play with makeup and things like that but that wasn't what was socially acceptable for her at school so she had to really suppress that part of herself and become very very shy when she began puberty she found that she was more attracted to men than to women which made things even more confusing to her Uh, one of my sources was an interview that she did with Joan Rivers which was actually an amazing interview it's super dated like the words that they use are like totally not the same vocabulary that we would now Um, and the questions that are asked I don't think would ever be asked now but Joan Rivers really does do this interview very, very well, especially for the time that it was in. It was very funny. It was really, really great. So I got a lot of my information from from there as well. And she's talking to Joan Rivers about the fact that she already feels weird, like she isn't like a normal boy. And then on top of that, she's like, I like men. Like, this is super weird. She's from this small, like, rural town. And she's like, why do I like boys I'm not supposed to then she's right. like well maybe I'm, I must be 
gay. gay. Yeah. But in her idea, that was really terrifying because at this time, it would be, you know, 60s, early 70s. If you were gay, that meant that you lived this very isolating secret. Well, it would have been illegal in the UK at that time. Totally. Right? Yes. Yeah. So you would be completely ostracized from society. And especially in like the very, very small country in which she grew up in, like that wasn't something that was discussed or even mentioned. And she knew that she would, again, have to hide part of who she was. Um, and also during this time, even more than, you know, not being accepting of a gay relationship or someone who would be gay, they definitely didn't know what it meant to be trans. Right. I mean, and even before maybe she had the vocabulary for it and just thought that she was a gay man. Yeah. Um, she obviously also felt that she was effeminate. Like, yes. so it's not just being like, and that a, was like first. a gay man. It was like, you're, you're also, you're not even like a masculine gay man. Do yeah. you know what I mean? But like into her, it was like, I, it was like doubly confusing. Right. She's like, one, I'm not supposed to be in this body. Two, I don't like the sex I'm supposed to. Right. What, who am I? And what the fuck do I do? And who I don't do know I love? anyone like me. Yeah. Like, yeah. what is this? Like, I, she probably thought she was a freak. You know That's what I mean? Honestly, like, what is going on? So scary. Like, thinking about how confusing growing up is anyway. Like, growing up is so confusing. And you've got so much going on already, like, internally, that feeling like, um, that alien feeling within yeah. your own body would be horrible and having no one to talk to. It would be very to. unbearable. She, it does seem like her family was very supportive of her. Okay, um, it's good. not discussed a lot, but it does seem like sh- her parents did allow her to play with the mother's clothes and the dress up and everything with okay, the little wow. sister. So yeah, it does seem like the parents, like while they maybe... It's a little bright she, spot. She says that they didn't really understand her, but like also it doesn't seem like they were abusive to her well, for I that. Well, I also feel like you don't always have to understand like what someone else is going through or what someone else's experience is as long as you're just there for them and allowing them to kind of explore Yeah, and you just love them. Right. You know what I mean? And so when she was going through puberty, she was experiencing these blackouts and that's when they uh, discovered that she had this Kleinfelter syndrome because they, the way she described it in this Joan Rivers interview, I guess that it'll happen with women who are premenopausal, uh, where it'll be part of like a hot flash and she would get these like blackouts where she would just get like... Oh, something to look forward to. Fantastic. I have never heard of that. <laughs> uh, but I get, that's what she said in this interview. And I was like, that's interesting. But I think it was because she was having these like blackouts, as she calls them. They took her to a doctor and they figured out she had this Kleinfelter syndrome. So maybe there was something... Um, medically there that the parents could understand as well as right. to maybe why their child is acting yeah. differently than it's most. It's sad that it would take that for some people, but like I do feel like that probably did give them, they were able to point to something yeah. um, scientific and physical and say like, oh, okay. This we can understand this, and, a little and, bit more. And you're able to say this is not something that they can control, right? Yes. Like this is I biologically. Hope, and I hope that was the situation. I hope so too. Yeah. You know? so she, I mean, I do want to say that with the caveat of your gender expression, your gender identity should be accepted no matter what. Obviously, I'm but just saying, at this time exactly. in this community, yes. Obviously, in this day and age, like, no, we don't need proof. Whatever. You say who you are, we <laughs> yeah, believe quote you 100%. Unquote, yeah. Yes. So she left formal school when she was 15 and ran away from home. She then got a job at a clothing store and a second job as a butcher's apprentice. No, thank you. No, thank you. 
And during this time, she started to come to terms with being gay. Um, but she also came to terms with the fact that she wanted to grow her hair long and she wanted to play with makeup. And she had this very like what she describes as like an androgynous look at the time. So she kind of looked feminine, but then she still had the flat chest and things like that. I'm so glad that we are moving in a direction where where we're realizing that gender is fluid and yeah. like we're so much more accepting of just kind of being like in a non non-binary space totally so that it makes it easier for people to kind of like because figure this out their sounds thing, more you know? normal for us than it Absolutely. would to anyone at this time yeah. in the 70s you know what i mean yeah um but she also really struggled because she wasn't accepted in the gay scene like she was in london at this time and that was very much like new york like new york mm-hmm. city you know and so there was a very big like gay nightlife it was still secretive but it was like definitely a thing and she just didn't fit in and she was like what's wrong with me they she was too feminine for that right and so she still felt really really lonely and like she really didn't understand where she fit in quote that she has in a Huffington Post article where I also got a lot of my information she says the need and identity within me was for men to desire me as a woman and that put me into a seemingly impossible position so she was finding that while she was having relationships with men and loved men they were loving her like a man and she wanted them to love her like a woman and she is like if you watch this Joan Rivers interview she's such a hopeless romantic loves sex like very open about all this kind of stuff there's a quote that I'm going to read by her later that's absolutely hilarious but she really had this desire she's like you know I wanted to be slept off my feet I wanted to be taken care of I wanted to be held and nurtured and that wasn't how I was being treated by the men that I was with in my life and also she felt like she didn't have a community still and she was like 16 wow (laughs) yeah um but it was also during this time shortly after she moved to london that she met a neighbor who was a trans woman and this completely opened her eyes was an aha light bulb moment of like oh my gosh there's somebody else like me and they're actually transitioning they're living their lives as a woman they're out and proud and she was like oh my god this is something that I can actually do and but by the time she was 17 she began receiving hormone therapy while in London she began working as an usherette at the theater and while she was there she was approached by like a very famous choreographer who was like you should be a showgirl and she's like well I'm I'm not a girl and the choreographer says to her but it's the, you know, what he says at the time, it's the drag queens in Paris that are, like, it's the men who dress as women that are really the most successful, and I think you could be really successful. And that was also kind of reassuring to her as well because she says that this was the first time that she was being recognized as a woman and working as a woman because she wasn't working with all trans women. She was working with cisgendered women acting as a real woman and she couldn't do topless for a while because she didn't have her boobs yet so she was dancing to save money to get her boobs and then she was saving more money in order to get her full reassignment surgery and things like that so this is the first time that she was like harnessing her like womanly power living as a woman and feeling really really strong in that And then also being a showgirl led to her having these acting and modeling opportunities as well. And when she started modeling, she began going under the name Tula. So if you look her up, you'll also see Tula a lot because that was her like stage name. 
But while she was going through a lot of success, it was also very important for her to keep her, what she felt is her true identity a secret, the fact that she was trans. She wasn't open about it in her relationships, like her romantic relationships or in her work relationships. It was something that she kept very, very private. And then after years of hormone treatments and counseling, along with saving the money she needed, she legally changed her name to Carolyn Cossie and had her final surgery on December 31st, 1974 in London. In an interview with Joan Rivers, they discuss her surgery and her desire to be loved like the woman she is, which is what I was mentioning, where she says, it's amazing that I wanted to get rid of it and spend the rest of my life trying to get my hands on one. (laughs) (laughs) She's so fucking funny. Like, I love her. She had a full social and work life as a woman, concealing her transition from those around her to keep up the, the facade. She was appearing on the covers of Australian Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, as well as The Sun and many other glamour magazines. There were so many like ads that she was like the poster woman for. She was everywhere. Um, And then in 1978, she got the role on a game show called 321, which was originally a Mexican game show that they brought over to the UK. And it was like a huge success. The show would actually go on for like 10 years. And it was shortly after she started working for 321 that in 1981, she was cast in the James Bond movie For Your Eyes Only. While working on 321 in 1981 after uh, For Your Eyes Only came out, a journalist contacted her telling her that he had discovered that she was trans and planned to report it. Then other journalists began investigating her past, contacting family members for the scoop. Can I just say, this kind of predatory journalism is so upsetting it's the worst it's it's really really terrible because journalism exists for a reason the free press exists for a reason we need it right like as a free society journalists have a very important role to play in our society but you but you're responsible Um, for so much and there are so many journalists that don't take that responsibility to heart well and this is not who is this benefiting yeah you're not you're not protecting the public from anything this is not um this is simply a paycheck. This is simply... Oh, it's awful. You're seeing this is something that um, will scandalize the public. Yeah. And I can I can monetarily, financially benefit from that. Yeah. It is not... It's not at all... There's no integrity here no. as a journalist. No, not And at all. I don't know how you can live with yourself when you do this kind of predatory journalism. Oh, totally. Um, 100%. Yeah, very upsetting. So this made her drop out of her job at 321, which is really unfortunate because, like I said, the show would go on for 10 years. Like, this could have been, like, she would have been set for life. She was a hit on that show, but she felt like being on that show was going to make her a bigger target. So for what she felt, the sake of herself and the show, she dropped out. She got out of her contract and kind of stepped out of the limelight for as much as she could. And it was shortly after the release of this Bond film where an article came out and I think it was like, oh, fuck, I just had it. I don't have it written down. It was like News Today or something like, I'll think of it later. I think I might have it written elsewhere, but it says, James Bond girl was a boy. Mm. It's awful. It's absolutely awful. In a Huffington Post interview, she says, being outed propelled me into the realm of activism as I began a legal battle with the British government that culminated at the European Court of Human Rights. I wasn't going to tolerate being openly and unfairly treated. I can't help the way I was born. I wasn't going to spend the rest of my life feeling ashamed or apologizing for it, and I don't think anyone else should either. 
it was really brave because I probably would have just crawled into a hole and yeah and I mean she did step out of the limelight but there was somebody in her life that she met that was very encouraging of her and this was a person by the name of Count Glocco Licinio wow what a name he was an Italian advertising executive I know them well um he seems like he might have had kind of like a weird fetish thing Mm, don't love that from what she's described like he was very Uh, He didn't want her to have the surgery, from what I understand. Like, he didn't want her to have the gender reassignment surgery, but also understood why she wanted to be legally a woman. So he really um, encouraged her to fight the courts on her birth certificate because she had had all of her surgeries. She was living as a woman, acting as a woman, and there are, like, on her passport, I think she said she could change her sex, but on her birth certificate, it still said male, which made her unable to marry, and she couldn't fully live her life as the woman she wanted to be. So it was this Licinio guy that really encouraged her to position to petition for changes in the British law concerning transgender people, and particularly for Carolyn herself to be recognized as a woman. The relationship eventually ended, but Licinio got her started on what would become a seven-year fight, which, like I said, eventually reached the European Court of Human Rights. It wasn't until September 27, 1990, that the European Court overturned its decision on British government appeal, which was the right for trans people in the UK to change their legal sex. That's that's wild. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, one last thing about the count. When he died in 2019, she shared to Twitter that he was, quote, one of the one of the only handful of men that stood up for me publicly and made me fight for my rights. He restored my dignity after the onslaught of being outed by the press and made me a proud lady again. After the count in 1985, Carolyn met Elias Vital, a bill a millionaire businessman, not a billionaire businessman, but millionaire. Who billionaire was, <laughs> would have been very impressive in that time. In 1985, you know? right? Who was unaware of her past until he proposed to her in 1988. So she talks about this on the Joan Rivers interview and she says like that she was never like super sexually active with Elias, but that she also was like, I'm pretty sure he knew. It was just never like discussed or anything like that. And so when he proposed to her, she came forward and and told him about, you know, her past and how she was born and all this kind of stuff. And when she told him, all he asked was whether she would convert to Judaism or not. <laughs> He's like, okay, I don't care. I don't care, <laughs> but like, can you be Jewish? And she was like, sure. I'm not really religious. I'll become a Jew, <laughs> whatever. So she agreed and they were married May 21st, 1989, just weeks after the European court decided to legally recognize Carolyn as a woman. She could finally get married. When they returned home from the honeymoon, they saw that News of the World had done a story on them. Although Elias was okay with who Carolyn was, his Jewish Orthodox family was not. They read the article and coerced him to annul the brief marriage. Well, they had to know that was going to come out, right? They didn't know. But I mean, like, she'd already been in the She'd been out, and that's why I'm confused, but I guess it was like, I think because, again, he was, I think he was from Greece or something like that. Like there was, I wonder, but there was this big, it was about their son and it was about them getting married and all this stuff. And I guess like she hadn't, didn't really know them very well and all this stuff. So I don't know the details about how they didn't know this about her, but there was a whole spread about how this trans woman married a 
millionaire, like this huge businessman millionaire. So the day they get back from their honeymoon, they see this article. Elias like leaves. He like goes to see his family. And then she is contacted by her husband's brother telling her to get a lawyer. And then she never saw her husband again. That's terrible. And the marriage was annulled. Isn't that absolutely heartbreaking? So stand up to your parents, bro. I mean, seriously, that's what Joan Rivers says too. Yeah. Like, come on. Yeah. She turned to writing to cope. In 1990, she came out with her memoir, My Story, and returned to modeling, posing for Playboy, saying she, quote, wanted to make a statement. At the time, the United States and Canada were ahead of the UK when it came to trans rights, including the right to marry. So she God, moved to the US. That is such a bummer because Isn't it's it? not like we're very we're good We're not this, much better. Know, like- <laughs> but I guess at the time they would still, you could change your birth certificate or your, your sex like on your license and things mm-hmm. like that. Like there was a little bit more leniency in what the US would allow you to do legally. In 1992, she met David Finch, not to be confused with David David Fincher, Fincher. like I was for a second, who was a Canadian man. They dated throughout the summer in the United States, and when David had to go back to Canada, they continued their relationship long distance, speaking every day on the phone. She flew to Montreal to meet David's family in November of 1991, and they accepted her with love and warmth. At a dinner during this trip, David asked her to marry him. Canadians, am I right? I know, right? So sweet. They've been married and living in Atlanta ever since. She left modeling when she married David and opened an antique shop. Oh, how cute. Right? Love that for her. Love it. The couple wanted children and tried through surrogacy with a few different women, but it never ended up happening. She didn't stay away from the spotlight forever, though. She would receive many, many letters from girls like her, which gave her the confidence to be a role model. Because I think she didn't really feel like she deserved to be a role model to people until more and more people read her story and learned about her. And she was suddenly like overwhelmed with messages from trans girls that made her feel like, wow, like I really do have like something to say. It really is like that documentary disclosure that we watched. It's like, you have to be able to see yourself represented, right? Like you have to be able to know that like you are not alone the same way I was saying about her. Like there are a lot of things that the internet has done wrong but one thing that i think that the internet has given us is the ability to share our experiences yeah and to have representation right and to know that like there are other people out there who are feeling exactly like you yeah right now yeah you know so that you can navigate your life better 100 percent When asked about the world beginning to embrace trans and gender nonconforming models, she says, as painful as it was to endure what I did in my life, it's all worth it when you saved lives or help people find direction in theirs. When asked what she wants her legacy to be, she says, as a vulnerable girl in rural Norfolk who was bullied, isolated, ridiculed, and made to feel helpless, I was able to find my strength as a woman to stand tall, to be counted, and fight back. We all have the innate strength to face anything we endure in life, and nobody can ever take it away. People or circumstances may, for a period of time, make you believe you don't have it, but it's always there. Ugh. And she's still she's still kicking. There was actually I got a little bit of information from her also off of this 
HBO documentary called The Trans List, which was created oh, yeah. by Janet Mock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And she almost talked about Janet Mock today. That really? Been, that would have been amazing. That, they like are their friends. Like that's really funny. She's like the second interview in that documentary, mm-hmm. and she's like sixty-one years old in this interview. Google her. Google image her because even in her like I guess older age, I just looked at pictures of her. Just oh now. my yeah, god, she's how beautiful. absolutely mm-hmm. stunning! I yeah. mean, my god, she's got that. Very 80s supermodel look. In, oh, in, in 70s. The best she way, had you know, like, like the Farrah Fawcett hair yeah. back in the 70s. And like she had like the 70s, 80s model look. Yes. that You know glow, what I mean? Like, yeah. That, like, she tanned, was tanned glow. The yeah. Sports Illustrated Playboy, mm-hmm. like whatever model, like is exactly what she was when mm-hmm. you think of her. But like as an older woman, like she is even more gorgeous. Like there was some like modeling pictures she took like in her 60s that are just like oh my god yeah, girl I bet I bet I didn't see an older photo of her but oh. I can tell already by the bone structure I'm like yes this is someone who's gonna age and she's got a great accent like I loved gorgeous watching eyes. her speak oh my god she's the bluest blue of blues eyes. my yeah. god yeah yeah she's am- I'm so happy like I saved an article that Huffington Post article that I quoted a lot I saved that in my notes like two years ago so I'm really happy that I thought of that and yeah. found it and actually like took Me the time too, to learn about her. I I'm did, a huge fan. Didn't know anything about her. So yeah. that's very fun to learn something new. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's all we have for you today. If there is any episode topics that you want us to cover in the future, go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message us on Instagram at angry neighborhood feminist. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can go and rate and review us on the business page and chat with the other listeners on the group page. Last but most certainly not least, if you want to make our days and help support us, it would be great if you would leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts with a quick sentence as to why you love us so much. All right, that's all we have for you today. With all that being said, we encourage you to rage on. Bye. Wander with us into a world of magic. Do you lack magic? Ever since I was born, I could hear the spirits of the other world. Where old stories take on a new life. If you break even one of these conditions, the consequence is death. And the world is teeming with possibilities. It's midnight, girls! They're here! Get ready to change! Well, for the last time, we're not kissing, Fritz! Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with as you've never heard them before. You are no more than a demon! Okay, Gown. Let's do this. And reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. Ready for your next adventure? Then we'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales.